This is Reconsidering, the podcast that explores how to make a living while making a life, or something that we like to call the alchemy of satisfaction. I'm Aaron Walter. For most people, the ingredients that go into a satisfying life are pretty mysterious. Certainly career and relationships play a big role, but they don't always go as planned, which makes satisfaction and happiness very mercurial. Bill Burnett, the executive director of the design program at Stanford and co-author of two best-selling books, Designing Your Life and Designing Your Work Life, thinks of life as a design problem that can be prototyped and iterated upon using design thinking. Maybe you're the type of person who already has a life plan. If so, congratulations, you're a very rare breed. The problem with most life plans though is that our pathway in life is ever-changing. How do we plan for the unexpected? In our conversation with Bill, he helps us see that change in life is a feature, not a bug. It creates opportunities for incremental improvements and for growth. After a historic year of transformation, we're all well positioned to rethink life and design something new for ourselves with clarity of convictions and a recognition of what's real. Bill's approach to life design will help you get started in your own process. After this quick break, join Bob Baxley, Meredith Brandt Black, and me, Aaron Walter, to chat with Bill Burnett on Reconsidering. Over the past very difficult year, many people have asked themselves, how can I use my skills and my talents to help out and have a meaningful impact? U.S. Digital Response is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that connects volunteer technologists with governments to help meet the critical needs of the public. Already, more than 7,000 people have raised their hands to volunteer their time and their skills. And they've helped more than 200 communities in 36 states and territories across the U.S. address some of the challenges related to elections, unemployment benefits, food security, COVID vaccinations, and so much more. There is work to be done and impact to be made. Sound interesting? Sign up to volunteer and learn more at usdigitalresponse.org. That's usdigitalresponse.org. Hi, my name is Bill Burnett. Right now I'm the executive director of the design program at Stanford. We have an undergraduate and a graduate program in design. What we used to call human-centered design, now we call design thinking. I teach those classes. I also run what's called the Life Design Lab. But, uh, oh gosh, in 2006, 2007, I got together with a buddy of mine named Dave Evans, and we thought, boy, the students are having a hard time figuring out what is college for, what's going to happen after college, what will life be like? There's a lot of data in positive psychology. There's a lot of stuff we're doing in design. This is a design problem. We'll come up with a class around that, and that turned into a bunch of different activities. But mostly I teach design to young designers. Outside, I spend my time in my own studio about four blocks from the house here in Dogpatch. I'm a painter and a musician. So design, creativity, that stuff has been a part of my life since I was a little kid sketching robots. Paper or plastic? Paper. Morning or night? Night. Newspaper or magazine? Newspaper. Book or e-reader? Book. Computer or smartphone? Uh, computer. Netflix or YouTube? 
Netflix. Twitter or Facebook? Neither. Nice. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Can't stand either. Steve Jobs or Tim Cook? Uh, Steve. Speaking or listening? Uh, listening. Read or write? Uh, read. Lecture or workshop? Workshop. Library or coffee shop? Oh, library. Mansion or apartment? Apartment. Home or office? Home. City or country? Mm, uh, tough one. I, I, I'm, I'm doing both. I'll say city. Okay. Hotel or Airbnb? Hotel. Uh, backpack or suitcase? Uh, suitcase. Dictionary or encyclopedia? Encyclopedia. Shakespeare or Einstein? <sighs> Einstein. <laughs> Tolstoy or Van Gogh? Van Gogh. Beauty or wisdom? Beauty. Poetry or prose? Poetry. I'm sort of curious, you know, with all your students and stuff, as they're confronting the pandemic and, you know, lives have taken some really different trajectories in the last 12, 15 months. Have you seen any trends in your students and how they're sort of reconsidering their future now that they've had the experience of the pandemic? Yeah, I have. And I think it's not just the pandemic. I mean, you know, I just talked about this on a lecture. 2019, we heard there's this, maybe there's this new flu disease, whatever, we don't know. We have the pandemic. Then we have the George Floyd murders and the campus erupts around racial justice in America. Long way to go there. Then we have the fires in California and I'm looking out my window and it's pitch black at noon. The sky is orange and you can't go outside. You can't breathe, literally. And then we have, you know, more named storms and we run out of alphabet because the storms are so bad. And so if you're a climate activist, you're like, this is going to hell. And then we have people storming the Capitol building trying to take over democracy. So you've got five massive disruptions. A lot of my students are very, very energized now and are are redirecting their energies towards racial justice, which I think is fantastic. This generation needs to get up on the, you know, get to the front of the line and, and make sure something happens. And I think the pandemic has just taught everybody how important human connection is. As a human-centered designer, a teacher of empathy, you know, start with empathy, don't start with the problem, start with people. I think that's been a really easy connection to make. And I think more so than, hey, I want to go get a good job at Facebook, people are thinking about how could I do something that has more impact and recognizing that climate change, racial justice, income inequality, just inequality in general in the U.S. is a set of problems that designers can work on and designers can have impact. So I love it because I'm seeing more idealism and idealism activated towards some kind of action. I think this generation is going to kick ass and take names. I also just see a lot of isolation, depression. It's just a lot of people hurting right now. And we're doing what we can to try to support them and create a positive learning environment as possible. But mostly, like all the rest of us, sitting in a room talking to a screen for 15 months. And that's just not normal for human beings. We're embodied intelligences. We move in space and time. And that's how we know where we are. I mean, I used to get up in the morning, get on the train at 22nd Street, go down to Stanford, walk to my office. The day it started, teach, 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 you know, do some classes, do some advising, get on the train, come home. You know, now it's a new thing. And we don't have any of those clues. We don't have the human touch. I was reading something about how the parasympathetic nervous system needs touch to calm down. Like, you know, stroking your face like this, like you stroke a baby's face or, or just, you know, stroking 
someone's arm is so critical to connection. You know, so short answer is yes. I think they're more energized around idealistic and very important topics. And I think everybody's a little frozen in place right now. And designing your work life, you mentioned a specific quote, when we live our lives waiting to get somewhere, the only place we get is stuck. Mm-hmm. We have something important to say to you. Whatever you're doing, it's good enough for now. Right. So since this was written before the pandemic, do you think that this still applies or do you think things have changed and you would give different advice based on what's happened in the past year? It's a great question and something we've been thinking about a lot because about four or five months ago, our editor called and said, let's reboot the book. I want four more chapters on the pandemic and how that changes everything. Because if we're talking about work, this is going to impact the world of work more than it impacts anything. So I think the good enough for now framing really comes from, you know, all of our stuff is pretty science, maybe sounds too too big, but research-based. I mean, I teach at Stanford. I'm not allowed to make stuff up. So if you look <laughs> at the science of behavior change, behavior change happens in small increments. Set a big goal, divide it into small increments, and that's how you get there. You know, you, you can't wake up one day and say, I'm going to run a marathon. And then in a few weeks, you'll discover, well, you're not even doing 6,000 steps. So you're pretty far from a marathon, so it's not going to work. So the idea of, particularly because, you know, we, I teach a bunch of super high-performing, you know, students who would want to take on the world. But the classic, you know, failure mode is to set a massive goal and I have no way of getting there. So I do think, particularly now, because the good enough for now framing, you know, set the bar low and clear it is, look, you can't change the external circumstances yet. It's going to take another six months or maybe more. We'll see what happens. It's undetermined. So you can't just be waiting for things to change. You've got to be active in this period of transition. How can you stay active? Well, there's lots of learning you can do. You you learning is not dependent on whether your job exists or doesn't exist. You setting goals and achieving things doesn't necessarily depend how you're impacted by the pandemic. I think the advice is still good and maybe even more so because the only thing you can do right now is small incremental tuning and changes. You know, I've been working a lot with my students and just on on finding jobs because that's a big element. I do a lot with the seniors and it's really lumpy right now. Before the pandemic, I had seniors who had offers at Lyft and Uber and Airbnb and, and, you know, like anything in the hospitality industry, that all went just went in the dumper. I mean, the, all the offers were canceled and they were all thinking they had a job and they didn't have one, which isn't as bad as, you know, all the restaurant workers and hospitality workers and hotel workers and everybody else where that industry is just gone and it's not coming back just because the pandemic's gone. It's going to take years to rebuild that. So in some places, whole careers and, you know, career trajectories have been wiped out. At the same time, Apple's hiring faster than it ever has. You know, Zoom is hiring faster than it ever has. Pinterest is doing really well. So you're heading into this huge headwind, and there's some places where there's lots of stuff going on. There's other places where it's absolutely zero. So you have to do it incrementally. There's no other way I know to sort of move forward in this kind of chaos. Pick something you're curious about. Go run a prototype, an information interview, some kind of an experience. But one nice thing is people are easier to get to on Zoom. I've had amazing guest speakers come to class because they don't have to drive to campus. They don't have to find a parking space. They can fit 30 minutes in, you know, set the bar low and clear it. It's good enough for now. The bigger thing in that is people think that I'll be happy if I just had this other thing. And all of the research on happiness says that's not true. Dan Gilbert and Harvard, you synthesize happiness. You make yourself happy by wanting what you've got 
not getting something new. Now, if you're if you're thoughtful about what you go for, go for, if you're thoughtful about you know what the next incremental thing is, you can make yourself happy with the next small change. But the notion that you know I got to change everything to be happy, or I'd be happier if I had more money, absolutely untrue. Proven again and again and again. Now, if you don't have enough, if you can't provide for safety and security for yourself, your family, there's a number. They actually have a, a number that, like, in the Bay Area, if you make this much money, more money than that, has no impact on your happiness at all. Zero. And yet people chase money. They chase a lot of false gods, right? And so one of the things we try to do in the class and the books and stuff is Get rid of these dysfunctional beliefs. Like what I majored in in college will decide what I do for the rest of my life. No, absolutely not true. Research says absolutely not true. So, you know, I have students come to me and they're senior and say, I majored in the wrong thing. So, well, how's that possible? Did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah, it was great. Did you learn a lot? Yeah, it's great. But I don't think I can get a job. So, well, that, that's what happens in the next two years. Let's talk about the next 60. My students will probably, this is the first generation that might live to be a healthy 100. Right? You know, once we get over the COVID thing and stuff and, and life expectancy keeps going, you might have to live to be a healthy 100 and you're going to graduate at 22, 24 to go to grad school. So that means you got another uh, 80 years. <laughs> Plenty of time left. Settle in, man. <laughs> you really think what you majored in in college is going to decide what you're doing 60 years from now? Don't you hope that even 10 years from now, the field you are in hasn't even been invented? You know, when you were at Claris, by the way, I was at Apple when you were mm-hmm. at Claris. It's like the field of user interaction had just been invented because we started to have programs that weren't command line interfaces and you actually had to move, you know, move things around. And so there was an interaction to design. That field didn't exist when I was in college. Didn't exist when you were in college, right? I was in college. I graduated with a, you know, a design degree and we were on drafting boards. Drafting boards. I fired the last draftsman at Apple. Well, I laid him off. He's doing fine. He's great. He's been a fantastic guy. But it's like, don't you hope 10 years from now you're working at the intersection of AI and design or something in you know, big data and something? It's like, chill out on the major thing. Happiness is in the now. It's not in the future. You talk a lot about happiness in the book. A couple quotes here. You say, create relationships with people, not things. That's one way to get you off the hedonic treadmill. You also say what makes life meaningful and what maximizes your happiness and longevity are relationships, who you love and who loves you. Talk to us a little bit about that, that formula of happiness, because happiness is sort of illusory. Like we think we know what we need, Maybe it's more money. Maybe it's the different job. And you talk about appreciating the now. So could you just unpack, like, what does happiness look like and how should we rethink that? Certainly. And we talk about it a lot because it's one of the things people talk about, you know, when they come to a workshop or a class or something. And they say, who's, un- you know, who's unhappy? Raise your hand. And by the way, 80% of the people who are unhappy are really successful. <laughs> Lawyers, doctors, private equity folks, venture capitalists, making lots of money and they're really unhappy. So they pursued something and it didn't pay off, right? It didn't, didn't what they wanted. The thing about relationships, longevity, and health comes from the Grant study, the Harvard study, which is the longest longitudinal study of in the Western world, at least, of adult development. I started, I think, with the class of Harvard men of 1938, something like that, 36, 38. And they've been studying them for 90 years. And the people who lived longer, who were happier, who reported their life as meaningful, who were healthier, 
didn't correlate to money, didn't correlate to success, didn't correlate to career, didn't correlate to status, didn't correlate to genetics. Everybody in the in the forties and fifties, they all thought, oh, it'll be genetics. These guys are just genetically, you know, wired to be more successful. None of that correlated. The only thing that correlated was relationship. People who had strong relationships in their family and in their community, and particularly people who did something for someone other than themselves. They volunteered time, they donated time, they worked somehow in their community for the betterment of others. Oh, gosh, every wisdom tradition on the planet, you know, you name it, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, blah, blah, blah. It's about compassion for someone other than yourself. And that led to a healthier life, a longer life. And actually, it turns out it leads to even higher incomes in some cases. So that's where that came from. And it's, again, just looking at research and saying, what does the research tell us about happiness? Now, Martin Seligman, the guy who started the whole positive psychology thing, and was called the happiness guy for a while, moved from just happiness to what he calls a model called PERMA. Happiness is an emotional state, but there's also engagement. There's also relationships. There's also achievement. What he talks about when he, in his book Flourish, I think, is about well, what makes a life truly satisfying. It's not just happiness. It's that sense of accomplishment, that sense of impact, that sense of connection with others in your community. So I think when people talk about happiness, I like to redirect them towards a bigger portfolio, right? It's not like, am I happy today? I can be happy because that person at my little cafe up here, Pacino, put an extra little heart on my latte foam. <laughs> I just became a grandfather four weeks ago. All right. Congratulations. If we had longer time, I'd show you lots of cute baby pictures. <laughs> and struggling through this pandemic and trying to figure out how to teach classes that were still engaging and you could learn in a problem-based way on Zoom was harder in hell. I'm not sure we've cracked the code, but we've done a pretty good job, according to the students. And that makes me satisfied. I can't say I was ever happy during that time. So, you know, it's more complex than the, than the emotional state of pleasure or happiness. And so I think that's why it's always about, you know, humans are interconnected creatures. I know from being a designer that if I can get the right three people or four people in a room and we brainstorm a problem, we can create something that none of us could have created individually. So that tells me that there's a possibility that there's a kind of intelligence that occurs outside of my body, outside of things. Jung called it the collective unconscious. You can look at it lots of different ways. Jazz musicians talk about it one way. When you know five people get together and create music, they didn't even know they could do. Or athletes talk about it being in the zone. Like I threw the ball, I knew exactly where my teammate would be. There's a deeper level of engagement that we need and that we can access that creates something that's people call it flow or in the zone or whatever. It's much more than happiness. It's a higher state. Bill, you mentioned in there sort of this, I think you called it the traditions of wisdom. And you mentioned, I think, Islam and Christianity. Are there others that you've studied or consulted in detail? Like in particular, I'm curious if you spent much time thinking about stoicism or even certain tenets of Buddhism. Those two also have a lot to say on this topic. The other book I stumbled onto as a 16-year-old at the Boston Public Library was Alan Watts' The Way of Zen. I was like, whoa, because you know, I was raised in the Episcopal Church by a, a reasonably religious family, and I was starting to go, I don't know about this whole thing yet. And then I discovered, oh, there's a whole other bunch of people who think about this differently. And, and that was interesting. 
my partner in writing and in class and, and all the design we've done around this is Dave Evans. And Dave is actually a pretty well-known thought leader in the Christian community. He does quite a bit of work in that community and has actually written a little side thing that we don't talk about so much, but there's a, there's a little, he's written a little mini chapter called The Christian Companion to Designing Your Life, which puts our teaching inside the framework of the gospel. I'm a, a existential atheist. I know there is no God and I know why. So, so don't give a 17-year-old, you know, thus makes Zarathustra, <laughs> because Nietzsche will explain to him how God is dead and it is a, a, a mythology that is no longer useful. So Dave and I are interesting guys because we have really strongly held, really well, well thought through worldviews and they're exact opposites. And I think that's one of the reasons we're such a good pair is that one, we respect each other. I respect his, his faith. He respects my atheism, but also that we can bounce around between those polarities and go, well, one way of framing this is, you know, the universe is a random place and you make your way. And another way of thinking about this is the universe is designed by an intelligence that has you know, some skin in the game. So I don't consider myself a scholar of religious traditions, but I've read a lot in the Buddhist tradition, in the Christian tradition, in the traditions of Islam and other things, in sort of mysticism and other forms of spirituality. It's the big question, right? Why are we here? And nobody likes the answer that I give. <laughs> <laughs> There's no good reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You start with the Big Bang, you know, work your way forward. Bunch of molecules, you know, thermodynamics. It's not a satisfying answer, you know. And so I get that people want that answer. And the number one idea in our class, in the books and everything else, is like, we're not your designers. You're the designer. We're going to give you ideas and tools. We'll give you a framework. We'll give you ways of talking about it. We'll name some things for you so that they get less foggy. But at the end of the day, you're the designer of your life. I'm just your coach, right? There's an old expression, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Because <laughs> in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha is inside you. So anyone who claims to be the Buddha is a false god, and we need to get rid of them. That's our philosophy as well. Like We're going to teach you some stuff. We're going to introduce you some ideas. We'll get rid of some bad ideas, like what you majored in matters or, you know, mm -hmm. that it's too late to change. We work with 60 and 70 year old people who can make changes. And, you know, I actually argue that older people are better at this than younger people because they just have a lot more laps around the track, right? And kind of know what matters. So I think, you know, we respectfully draw on the traditions across the board, but it's sort of a, as a Joseph Campbell fan, it's like, isn't it interesting that almost all wisdom traditions, religions, philosophies have something about compassion because we are community animals. And if we don't take care of each other, it doesn't end up well. Isn't it interesting that at least in the positive aspects of most traditions, we talk about doing to others as you would have them doing to you or, you know, the serenity prayer, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept what I cannot change. What's the first step in designing your life? Except if they were here, he'd say, you can't solve a problem you're not willing to have. You got to start with, wait a minute, this isn't working for me. I want to change something. Now, I don't know how to do that. So maybe these guys have some, some suggestions for me and maybe some other people do as well. Our very, very favorite review of the book when it first came out was somebody said, clearly the authors respect the autonomy of the reader and don't tell us what to do. And that's a great review. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Exactly. That's exactly the point of, of the book is 
you're going to be the designer. You have an intuitive sense. It might be undeveloped and you might not be able to you know, name it or claim it yet, but you have an intuitive sense of what's right. Let's teach you how designers figure that stuff out. And then let's go apply it to something interesting like your life. And it turns out to be useful. You mentioned in Designing Your Work Life that designing your life is designing your work. Designing your work is also designing your life. And we rarely give ourselves time to reflect on the totality of it all. I'd love to talk about reflection with you. Why do you think it's so important to reflect? And what have you personally discovered as a result of reflecting within your own personal life as well as in your career in design? Well, we talk about there's kind of two kinds of reflection. There's reflection in the moment, like what's happening to me right now? You know, the, the idea of mindfulness or, or being, being present with yourself in the moment. What's happening to me right now? How am I feeling? How am I processing the world? That's one form of reflection. Most people think of reflection as sort of retrospective. We talk about a you know, seventh day reflection in the book, or we talk about showing out the good time journal. Just the number one finding of the happiness guys is if you reflect every day, if you write down something you are grateful for or something you know positive that happened to you after six to eight weeks, because you're reflecting on a positive thing, right. your mood will change. You will start to notice more positive things. It's what I call the red car effect. You don't notice how many red cars there are until you buy a red car. And then you realize, well, look at all these red cars. Where did they come from? As soon as you start paying attention to the positive things you're grateful for, you actually change the biochemistry and your brain wires up a little differently. And now all of a sudden you start to notice that the world is sometimes a very good place. It's not to say that bad things don't happen and all that, but I mean, it's this idea that what you direct your attention, these 85 billion neurons, what you ask them to pay attention to is in fact your reality. The only reality you've got is that talking brain that's going on all the time. Now, there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And once you access you know, your creative side and things, you, you have more information. But if you can learn to do reflection, it's also in learning theory, if I teach you something and then I have you practice it and then I have you reflect on what you learn, I don't know the exact statistics, but we like double your attention. You know, I gave you some stuff, then we practiced whatever that stuff was. And then you reflected on it. It's just another way of really, you know, encoding it and remembering it and and having it be part of how you now think. So what we're trying to do in designing your work life, designing your life is change the framework. We've been working with lots of companies, including Pinterest, by the way, which teaches designing your life now in Carol. What we discovered is most of the talent management schemes fail and employee engagement is dismal. And they keep trying the same thing over and over again. We believe the reason it doesn't work is the conversation they want to have is about work and how to make you a better worker. And engagement would be nice, but what we really want is to get more out of you. (laughs) And the data says if you're more engaged, you'll work harder. Okay, fine. But nobody wants to have that conversation. I don't want to have a conversation about work. I want to have a conversation about my life. I want to have a conversation about what's this all for and what does it mean? How's it going to get me where I want to go? And how's it going to support my family? And how will it make me a better father? So they want a conversation about life with a job in it. If you start from the job and go out, you're doing it backwards. Because at least in the Western world, most of us spend most of our time working. And we work for a whole bunch of different reasons. And so if we don't have the conversation about how work connects to life, then we know it's a false conversation. It's a conversation designed to exploit us as a worker. So when we flip it around, and companies have to be pretty brave, because you know if you want to do designing your life with people, we're going to do three odyssey plans, and one of the odyssey plans would be, what am I going to do when I quit? 
And then I'm going to go talk to my boss about just one role I could take at Pinterest. Here's another thing I could do at Pinterest. And here's what I do if I quit. And people go like, you got it? You want us to pay you guys to come in and teach people how to quit? And I said, well, let me tell you really briefly how this works. You only have two options. You want to find out why I quit in the exit interview? Or do you want to be in that conversation now? Because guess what? Conversation is happening. You're just not part of it. There's some statistic, like 40% of people are looking for a new job while they're on the job. You want to find out what's going on and maybe take this really creative person and direct them towards something amazing that they could do inside the company for the period of time that that matches their goals? Or do you want to go, la, 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 I don't want to hear it and pretend that, that you're somehow engaging people when you're not talking to them about the thing they want to talk about, which is their life. Now, it's hard much harder than talking about your job requirements, <laughs> but it works and it's liberating. And you know, what's so funny is in those workshops, you know, I get this pushback from managers. Oh, we can't have this. This is, this conversation is too dangerous. Not gonna then after the workshop, I go, okay, can I just talk to you for a second? <laughs> Cause remember everybody who's a manager is also a worker. Even the CEO reports to the board of directors. And she is pissed off that no one's paying attention to her work-life mix, right? And so we play these roles as if they were real, but in fact, we're all just, you know, well, my Josh Whedon quote on my quote role is like, we're all just damaged people trying to get through for the next day. So we're all just trying to figure this stuff out. And if we could have more human conversations and not play roles, manager, employee, director, vice president. And like, when you go home, you're just that dude who sits on the couch and watches TV. You're not the vice president of anything. But people think of work and life as very separate things. I think that the pandemic has kind of blown up that mystery because work and life, we were forced to put it in the same building. Yeah. And we realized how broken it is to think of those as two separate compartments. And so that's why a lot of people are in this reconsidering stage of their career and their life of like, what does this mean? And how do I plot a way forward? And when we're wayfinding in a forest, what do we use? We use a compass. You talk about building a compass for your life in chapter two of your book about that work view and that life view. Could you walk us through that? I think you've touched on one thing. Maybe the most positive thing, if anything positive comes out of the pandemic, is that we're now all humans in a room. I'm seeing, you know, the picture behind you and I'm seeing the bookshelf behind you. And there's this whole thing about looking at bookshelves to see what you read. And all that stuff. <laughs> and I'm not so there's a human in the room and, and we're in our houses together. And so this whole notion that you're the senior vice president and I'm the junior director, it's like, who the hell cares? We're just trying to get stuff done. So hopefully that's going to change the way we approach things because now we have to be more like human beings. Part of the problem is I give you design tools and you come up with lots more options and you still can't choose because <laughs> I got a lot more options now and they're really exciting and I don't know where I'm going. So, you know, how do I choose? So we start with this thing, you know, we call compass, but it's, it's really just write me 250 words about what's your theory of work? Why do we work? And, you know, that's changed a lot over time. My grandfather was a, an immigrant from Germany, came out of Germany, got the family out of Germany in 1933 because this guy named Adolf something had been elected chancellor and he didn't think it was going to go so well. So he got the family to California somehow, any, any way he could, you know, working any job. And he spoke almost no English when he landed in New York and he 
he took terrible jobs and he finally ended up working in the in California here, but working at the sewage factory, which he called the shit house in German, literally <laughs> shoveling you know, feces from one tank to another. And his idea of work was, I'm going to get my family someplace safe. I'm going to put a roof over our head. I'm going to get send my kids to school. That was a noble profession. He wasn't looking for job satisfaction, creativity, learning, but he had, he had that in his community. I mean, there was a big German community in the Bay Area and he had his relatives and his friends and he had his church. And so his community and his meaning making, if you will, was completely separated from work. Pretty modern idea that you're going to go to work and get your, you know, your whole soul fed. That's not what work is normally about, right? So you do a work field. What's your theory of work? Why do we work? And in his case, his theory would be, I work to provide my family with safety and security. Full stop. Most people now will have, add more than that. They'll say, you know, and I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to, you know, I want to contribute to society in some way. And then we say, okay, fine. That's, that's great. Now write your life view, your worldview. What's, what's the world of work? How's that connect to the big picture? Why are you here? Give me a short paragraph. Sometimes it turns out to be five pages on what's the meaning of life. And that's where people can connect themselves to some ultimate story or uh, spirituality, or they can just talk about why they get up in the morning and do what they do. And we never debrief the life view separate from the work view. I don't care if you have a strong spiritual point of view in a traditional religion or whether you have your own thing that you cooked up or whether you're an anarchist. And it doesn't matter. As long as you can make the connection between why I work and why I think people are on the planet, what's it for, then you have coherence. You have some kind of coherence. And, and it changes. Like you, you work for different reasons. I mean, when I was young and early in my career, I just worked to learn stuff and be in cool companies and make money. And then as soon as I had a family and kids, it was like, whoa, wait a minute. I got a whole, what was a Zorba quote, you know, wife, children, the whole catastrophe. Um, I, I, I got a, I got a bunch of stuff and a mortgage and I got, you know, in, in college and you know, so you just keep tuning that fit. What's your life view? What's your work view? How do they complement each other? Where do they clash? And this is often where people find themselves out of balance. This is where the lawyer, the senior partner in the big law firm or the private equity person will come up to me and she'll say, man, I hate my job, but you know, everybody tells me I'm so lucky. I make so much money and in this very prestigious position, but it's just not, it's not what I want. When we start talking and we debug that somewhere along the line, the reason for working kind of had its own momentum and got them to some place they didn't want to go, but it felt okay at the time. And of course the money and privilege and and status came with it. And then they get to a certain point if they're an awake person and they say, this isn't where I wanted to be. You know, the compass is telling you, you are way off track, right? Now, how do we get you back? That's what that exercise helps you do. Because once you sort of say, okay, I, I see what's out of balance. I see why, although I'm accomplishing a lot and others are telling me this is cool, it's not working for me. Now, give me some ideas about how to start making some small incremental changes to turn the super tanker back to something. You know, that's good. And it is, it's interesting to me that the people who are the most resistant to trying something new feel the most stuck and feel like they have no options are the people who are highly privileged, lots of money, have lots of options, and they're stuck anyway because they're stuck in the social construct of where they're at. Dave's working with a single mom, works at Stanford in the cafeteria and raising two kids by herself. And she feels more creative confidence and more enabled 
than, you know, some of the people I've worked with who, you know, like, come on, get a life, man. Just like bank a million dollars from your big law firm, go hire yourself a therapist and get your shit together. What are you, what are you waiting for? <laughs> so, you know, Bill, one of the other tools, so you guys are talking about the compass thing. One of the other tools from the book is this dashboard idea yeah. where you had four dimensions in the dashboard. So it was uh, health, love, work, and play. Like health obviously gets a ton of attention in lots of places. You mentioned earlier that maybe with the pandemic, our relationship to love has shifted a little bit. Work gets a lot of play in designing your life and then gets its own book in designing your work. I don't think like you've spoken a lot about the role of play. And I wonder if you could talk about that just a little bit. First of all, we wanted to get out of the, you know, the false dichotomy of work-life balance. All these, you know, mm-hmm. where, you, where you pit one thing against another, it's just a horrible way to think. It's the wrong way to make decisions. It's neurologically, it's a zero-sum game. You can't win it. So we always blow those up. And in this case, we said kind of drawing from Seligman and some other people, we said he's got a seven-thing model and some of the other nine-thing model, and I can't remember any more than four things. So we said, all right, work, love, health, and play. And play, turns out, there's a lot of learning theory that says play is actually the critical component in learning, how children learn how to manipulate the three-dimensional world. I'm watching my little grandson at four weeks old, like looking at his hand and going, what's this, you know, and putting it in his mouth and going, oh, that's interesting. We learn through playing, through interaction with ourselves and then with others. There's a lot of parts of the brain that are actually wired for activities that are intrinsically valuable. Our curiosity is a, a very interesting human trait, existence of other primates, where we'll just go try things because we're, quote, curious. But what's happening is we're learning as we go. As we play, we're learning about the world. We're learning about relationships. We're learning about interactions. We think play is frivolous and we don't value it, but it's neurologically necessary in order for us to continue to be curious and learning. And so we wanted to make sure that play was in the model. And yeah, you're right. We don't, we don't talk a lot about how to play, but if I think about If you were to walk into one of my design classes in the middle of one of the concept sessions, you didn't know what was going on and you stood back and say, everybody in this class looks like they're having a great time. It looks like they're goofing around or they're laughing. They're putting post-its on boards. They look like they're playing. (laughs) And they are. They're playing with a problem. They're playing with a concept. They're, you know, they're manipulating it. Now they have a point of departure and a place they're trying to get to. And normally we describe play as an activity that's intrinsically valuable. You do it just for the value of doing it. But, you know, so many people, particularly Silicon Valley, so many people are so overloaded between work and family and now pandemics. I mean, and and this has been super differential. If you're in the lower income bracket, you might have worked in the hospitality or the restaurant industry, and now you are, you're wiped out. Or you're, I mean, I was, I was talking with a woman the other day and she's a single mom and she's very successful and has a good job and the job is you know continuing to go and she's making money but she's got two kids at home and all of a sudden she's the fourth grade and sixth grade teacher right she's got to get them on on their laptops get them on zoom get them through their program so i can't think of anything that's more torturous for a sixth grade boy i mean it's hard enough for a sixth grade boy to sit quietly in a classroom and pay attention and not get labeled ADD because he just wants to go outside and climb a tree, which is what a sixth grade nine or 10 year old boy or girl should want to do. But sitting in front of a screen, oh my God, you know, this is inhuman. If you're in that situation, finding some time to play and making sure you keep that time because it's part of keeping yourself sane and coherent, 
on track and not losing sight of things that are important, that's really a big deal. So play is connected to learning. It's connected to a neurological sense of wellness. It's actually a part of, in some ways, you can imagine a person with a, a playful spirit is going to be healthier, both in mind and body. So it's a really important one. Who are your role models or who do you look up to? Well, at Stanford, there's a professor, uh, Professor Bernie Roth. Bernie wrote a book called The Achievement Habit. You should talk to Bernie. He's great. And Bernie's my Yoda. He's my Zen master at Stanford. I think he's 86 or 87, teaching a full load, bicycles to campus every day, a wonderful human and teaches like the hardest math class on campus and the graduate students fear it. (laughs) And and it's also, you know, got into the design thing and teaches design and teaches creativity. And and he has a class that he's taught forever called The Designer in Society, which is a name that means nothing. It's basically his version of, designing your life, like a transformational experience. Bernie was a friend of Werner Erhard. He was an Est uh, trainer. He's, he's, he's had a massively interesting career. And I just love Bernie because he's always positive. He shows up. He's present. He's 25 years older than everybody else on the faculty, and he can kick their ass. So I love him. So he's a, he's a personal mentor, and I often ask him questions for help and things because he's just brilliant. You know, I really look up to my, my buddy Dave. He's one of the best collaborators I've ever worked with. And he's such a polymath in his thinking. I mean, he did Stanford and uh, engineer and stuff, but he's really a very disciplined thinker. And he's taught himself so many things that, that I've learned from. In the bigger world, maybe it's cliche, but of the teachers in the spiritual communities of the world, I really admire the Dalai Lama. And I'm here for two reasons. There's absolutely no reason he should be as good as he is. He was abducted from his family by a bunch of monks when he was two. He was raised in a monastery by a bunch of crazy people. He was, you know, snuck out under, you know, under cloak of night when the Chinese communists came to destroy his country. And yet he did turn into a great spiritual leader and a profound interpreter of the spiritual texts of Buddhism. And you're a little kid grown up in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere. And then you are thrust into this role with a story that maybe is true, maybe isn't. But he embodies this guy and he does it really well. And then he he figured out, oh, this is different than being a Dalai Lama in the 16th century. There's this thing called media. Maybe I ought to get really savvy about that. So one, I just think his story is amazing. Whether he's the 18th reincarnation of something I is beyond my pay grade. But I also saw him at Stanford and he did something I never expected. He was at Stanford and I, because I was in the faculty, I was invited to sit in and I was pretty close. Like he was a couple of, you know, a couple of yards away. He did his talk about his ideas of compassion and stuff, which I thought was wonderful. And then um, he had a Q&A session. The best one was a young woman came up and she said, I'm in a relationship. I have this thing with this guy and it's very difficult and I want to love him, but I'm not sure, you know, he loves me back. And, and he stopped here. He said, I appreciate your question and I have great sympathy for your situation, but you have to understand I'm a monk. I've been raised in a monastery. I've never had a relationship with anyone. I'm the Dalai Lama. You shouldn't ask me that question. I can't help you. And I thought, okay, a priest, the Pope, somebody, they'd have winged it. They'd have given some dogma. They'd have given some bullshit. 
about, you know, oh, do the right, blah, 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 you know, whatever. And he just told the truth. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about this. I'm a monk. <laughs> <laughs> his sort of technical brilliance with the texts and his interpretation of Buddhism, I think, is wonderful. Turns out to be a very smart kid. His complete embodiment of the selflessness of his role and his position, I think, is full of coherence and integrity. And the fact that he doesn't pretend to be something he's not, I find inspiring, particularly with somebody with a world stage who could decide to make a pronouncement about, you know, the compassion in relationships and how we should love each other. And he and, and is like, I don't know anything about that. Next question. <laughs> That's, that's so amazing. Both as a, as a world figure and as that moment of humanness that I saw in him. Plus, he has a ridiculous sense of humor. And twice he told a joke and laughed so hard he fell off his chair. Literally. <laughs> and can you imagine as, you know, a spiritual leader in the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church or, or you know, a, an imam or somebody making fun of himself right. in, in such an authentic and real way? I can't imagine so, Bill, before we let you go, I just I kind of want to cycle back to where we started a little bit towards the beginning. So sure. you, you painted a nice picture for us of this 16-year-old kid hanging out at the public library <laughs> on Boylston Street in Boston. And I want you to take that kid a little bit. I want you to add about nine years to their age. And I want you to kind of imagine in your head now, 25-year-old Bill, maybe you're a couple of years out of college or something. And if Bill today was to talk to that 25-year-old Bill, what do you think that 25-year-old Bill, what kind of advice – would that bill have for the bill that you are today? My age bill to the young bill would say, relax, the stuff you're worrying about is not that important. Focus on doing good work and the relationships you create through the world of work. So that would be my advice. What the 25-year-old bill would say to, to me, I think, is never lose your curiosity. Mm, yeah, Curiosity is the thing that pulls you into what's new or what's different. What's I'm an introvert. I'm way, way you know, I on the Myers-Briggs thing, I was an incredibly shy child. I don't like public speaking. I don't like any of the things I've ended up doing very much. And so they're a learned behavior, not a natural behavior for me. Yeah, don't lose your curiosity. You know, and, and again, at this point, it doesn't really matter what your title is or anything else. I see so many people my age kind of, I don't know, give up. They've stopped changing. They've stopped being curious. Like, Aren't you interested in what this AI thing is? Aren't you interested? In, like, oh, I don't do social media. It's like, well, I work with, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds. One of my students started Snapchat. One of my, one of my students started did the GIF keyboard that's on your, on your iPhone. It's like, I try all the new stuff all the time. I'm always asking my students, hey, what, what do you guys, you know, like, what are you doing? It's like, ah, Facebook, that's, you know, my, my mom's on Facebook. That's bullshit. It's like, it's Snapchat. Uh, Snapchat, that's my... You know, my older brother's on Snapchat. Now it's you know, now it's TikTok, and then it, then it'll be something else, something else. So I just love being curious. And that's I think what my twenty five year old would tell me. That's great. Hey, thank you so much for spending the time with us. This was this was uh, such an inspiration and a joy, and so much fun. And now I know how to connect the face with the books. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, th- th- thanks for the opportunity. So fascinating conversation with Bill. There were a number of things that stuck with me. I find it interesting that he and Dave Evans have spent so much time just thinking about like frameworks for building your life, mm-hmm. which is, of course, connected to design thinking. 
when I was listening to Bill and I've reflected on both his books, what I thought was interesting was not so much that they were asking questions that haven't already been asked by millions and millions of people over the last thousands and thousands of years. These are timeless questions of what it means to be a human being. But I thought it was fascinating how they were bringing in these modern tools of design thinking and these design frameworks to these ancient questions. I thought the synthesis of the old questions with new techniques was particularly interesting. His philosophy and Dave's philosophy is very approachable. I think this is a big, meaty topic that everybody kind of struggles with, and he kind of breaks it down into easy consumable pieces, which I personally found to be much easier to consume and much less of a hill to climb, so to speak. Yeah, even the little exercise of building your compass in designing your life, there's an exercise where you take some time and identify this is your view of what work is for, and this is your view of what life is for. And then the next step is to see like the difference, the deltas between those two mm -hmm. perspectives and see where the gaps are. And, you know, as we talked about with Bill, the pandemic really forced us all to see that whether we we're aware of it or not, whether we wanted to or not, because work and life are happening in the same place all the time. Your kids sit behind you doing coursework while you're trying to sit in a Zoom meeting, and it's all just kind of piled together. And that leads to some heavy questions about like, what is it that I really want to do career-wise, and how does that fit into the life that I want to lead? To riff off that a little bit, like the pandemic has forced to the foreground for everybody you know, this question of who am I and what do I want? Mm -hmm. And again, philosophy has been asking these questions for millennia. And I think we all feel those questions inside all the time, but they're easy to ignore. They're easy to ignore when there's things other than the pandemic happening. And they're easy to ignore because they're really hard and they're just overwhelming. And so the beauty of Bill and Dave's methodology is it just gives you these little tiny steps, right? They give you a pretty clear way of just taking that next step and here's how to break that down so that you can get to these much bigger questions that, again, kind of on their own are so overwhelming. We kind of asked him what the first step in designing your life was, and he responded you know, very quickly with, you have to accept that you can't find the solution to a problem you're not willing to accept. I thought that was really interesting, and I think part of that comes back to the pandemic and the questions that we were asking him is, you can't change the external circumstances around you, right? You can't change that there's a pandemic happening, but what you can change is what you're going to do in your everyday life and what your approach is going to be during a pandemic. I like that acceptance is saying like, what I'm doing right now is good enough for now. Yeah. Instead of it having to be like the perfect thing. Right. You know, I think for many of us, we confront different aspects of our lives and we want it to be kind of optimized. That's certainly the way I think about life on a, a regular basis. Or like, is this the right thing to do? And if you could take that just out of the equation and say like, don't worry if it's the right thing to do, the right way to spend your time. But it's right for now. And, you know, there's opportunity to change tack at any point. Yeah. It takes a lot of pressure off of things, right? Yeah. But especially when you're living in a world that's changing as rapidly as ours is, you know, it's folly to think that you're going to come up with a single solution and stick with it. Like anybody that's got a 10-year plan is not really paying attention because the world is going to look so profoundly different in 10 years that any plan is going to be blown away. Like you just need to figure out, given the circumstances of the world right now, what makes sense for me, to your point, Aaron, like for right now, because everything's in motion. I'm in motion. My family's in motion. The world's in motion. The industry's in motion. Like everything is in motion. And there's just no way you're going to be able to accurately predict that 
in a 5, 10, 20, 50 year time horizon. I can't even do it within one day. No. <laughs> <laughs> even when he was talking about specific jobs and he kind of spun it into a positive, right? Where he said, hey, isn't it exciting that you kind of don't know what your job description or what your job's going to be five to seven years from now? That means that things are constantly changing in a positive way. And that should be a good thing because you're constantly being challenged and you're you're not looking for kind of this like gold standard, so to speak. One of my main takeaways from him, and really I think the most inspirational moment I had listening to him, was when he talked at the end about curiosity. And he's obviously such a curious person, you know, and so much of that energy comes through him. And I think he might be a little bit older than I am, but not much, you know, and, and I struggle with like, wow, what's that energy that's going to keep me going as I, you know, move into my 60s and beyond, because I don't really want to slow down. And, it, and so I, th- I think their whole methodology and a, and a lot of what he was sharing in the interview and how he comes across as a, as a person, he just really embodies the growth mindset, again, in a way that I think was super inspiring for me. I admire that curiosity guides Bill's attention to lots of different things. In fact, I think right before he joined us on the show, he was in his studio working on paintings and he's a musician. He's involved in a lot of things. Bill said something that really resonated with me. We were talking about curiosity and curiosity is essentially the guide to how we direct our attention. And Bill said that what you pay attention to is your reality. So curiosity is essentially shaping your human experience that points your attention towards different things, broadens your perspective of your world, your life of possibilities, kind of opens your perspective. And in doing so, it it changes the human existence. It changes the human experience and makes that feel a lot more inviting, welcoming, hopeful. So those of you who have not read Bill and Dave's books, they are designing your work life and designing your life, and they're full of lots of exercises. We didn't even scratch the surface of all the exercises within. So if this conversation is interesting, you should certainly check out the books and give it a spin for yourself. Reconsidering is created by Meredith Blackbrandt, Bob Baxley, and Aaron Walter with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed the episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, we'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. It'll help others discover the show. Until next time, Remember, life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in.